So here's what Jonathan yes. Goldsby said, so Patrick Brown. I've now discovered the negligence more than a year ago. So uh, screen caps in that, which he says, um, at the time after the public was signed on November 4th, optimum public, the judgment even, as you said, comes to Emma McIntosh. Yo, why isn't the audience in this column? Steve Pakin's wife is friends with Patrick Brown. Deeper than that, Steve wrote Patrick Brown. A fact also, I'm asking. Mm-hmm. I'm because she had to go back. Yeah. She had to go back and delete that tweet because someone from TVO reached out to her and said that's not true. She only edited a certain section. Right. She was a fact checker. Right. Outweigh the original memory they has and which that actually is to society by anyone. Found that as a journalist, an unbiased opinion. By the way, um, I now realize my bio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea there is that she tried to catch him on a technicality that John has got an aisle seat while they walk down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Involved in crafting people than Pagan disclosure. Pagan says, sorry, Grosso says, for like thousands. And I'm kind of wondering, yeah. is she correcting that she got Duke, i.e. Definitely the second one. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, not that she's trying to like, showcase. I mean, it doesn't end there. Like from Steve Pagan's own words, I'll show you. Um, let me just pull it up. So he starts this piece by talking about uh, when his son, Zach, was running for the liberal riding for the federal Hamilton riding yeah. uh, eight years ago when Trudeau came and sat down in, I guess, their box when they were watching the men's Olympic hockey semifinal in Montreal. Yep. They're photographed together, all hugging and cheering. And it was there was questions about the uh, the closeness of their relationship and stuff. Um so that's what he opens this with. Then he goes on to list uh, that his mother works for the Atomic Energy of Canada Limited. Um, she was also on the Ontario Council of University Affairs. Uh, then uh, son Teddy has canvassed for a lot of parties. That's not that's just his kids. That's not really a big one, but. Uh, his son, Henry, works for Senator Francis Lankin. Um, his wife, as he says, again, used to be director for policy for Tony Clement uh, when he was Ontario's health minister. And as well, uh, some more canvassing from his daughter. I should have gone through these. Uh, but yeah, uh, Paul Miller, the, N- the MP- NDP MPP who was ejected from caucus is his cousin. I mean, a lot of these aren't really uh, super big. They're not as as flashy as his wife's conflict of interest, especially because it doesn't seem like he was being very honest with even TVO about it. Right. But it does. What it does sort of paint a picture of is that it's a small club, and you're not in. Yeah. So I, I. Um... I don't know. I, I think what he did also in the column was allude a little bit to um, his son's running for the lead. Oh, shoot, sorry, he, he's running for delegate for the federal Liberal Party, <clears throat> which didn't work out mm-hmm. because he and Trudeau were at odds with one another. Uh, so um, Zach Pickin dropped out of that race and went on to do what he's doing right now, which is working with policy think tanks and parroting McDonald Lord talking point but um during that period of time like i don't know that i would even say that there was a any of his reporting that is a uh, steve Bacon's 
reporting or anything that he was talking about on the show or in the columns had a conflict of interest there. But I find it interesting. He dropped that into the conversation when it wasn't something that was really in question in the first place. It was entirely about his wife's involvement with Patrick Brown. So that was, that was the other thing. It, the column, I don't think, clarified anything. If anything, to me, it raised more questions than it did to answer anything, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, well, because there's a lot of things people didn't know. Yeah. Um, and clearly TVO didn't know it, I, I think which is the thing. I guess that's just probably my hang-up. But... To do in that situation is simply not report on those items. And unfortunately, because Pekin, I don't know, maybe just can't imagine himself not talking about these issues or weighing in on them just felt the need to simply not disclose those conflicts of interest. And now that he's been forced to drag them out in the open, his response isn't, I'm sorry, and I won't do that again. I will recuse myself from commentary on these matters. It's like, no, 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 I will make sure that you know as soon as I know. But it's like, I I just don't believe that you didn't know how deeply involved your wife was with Patrick Brown's book authoring. I just don't believe it. No. And that's that's one of the things or, that, um, that David Mistracci has been pointing to for well over a year now. And a lot of journalists have gotten pissed off by the fact that he does this. But he talks about how deeply conflicted the industry is because many people who work in the mm-hmm. journalism industry in Canada have familial connections to the industry. They have parents and grandparents that are working in the industry or have been working in the industry. And also they have deep political ties as well. And no one seems to want to talk about that. It is a very closed circle. And being somebody that worked in uh, columns, like opinion journalism myself, it it is incredibly hard to break into the industry as a staff writer. And for the most part, the people that end up becoming staff writers, even if they've gone through journalism school and everything, they are generally the people that already have familiar. It's not very often that you'll get somebody comes from no kind of journalism background, no political background, isn't the child of like, you know, a senior manager or executive, some large company, because basically you need to have something to, to float you during the period mm-hmm. of time when you're taking very low paid work. And the only people who can afford to do that are rich. So that's pretty much the way that Canadian journalism. So Steve Pagan having to come out with this column, I don't think really changes anything. I think it's just making it very clear that, yeah, it is uh, a cool kids cool club cool kids club and you're not in it yeah the like the only issue that he's going to get in trouble with it is because he didn't disclose it properly uh like dan mater and mercedes stevenson are married and that's okay because everybody knows about it yeah so um just to and he's a sorry, conservative strategist for... things up with the uh, the twitch stream because it is verging on four o'clock p.m so what we're going to do is the Twitch stream is going to be raiding into Rob Rousseau's channel. However, the call-in show is going to continue. So if you want to continue to listen to the call-in show, like we've uh, dropped the link to the show in the chat, uh, and feel free to um, either download the app on your mobile device and listen there, or you can go to uh, the call-in site on the web and listen to us there. The only thing is that if you want to participate in the conversation, you'll need to download the app to your iPhone or your Android device uh, to be able to call in. Uh, But for the uh, Twitch viewers, uh, we're going to drop you off into Rob Rousseau's channel. So if you want to hop on over to call in and have the conversation with us, that's great. We are very much looking forward to your questions and your comments, etc. 
um, but you'll ensure that you either download the app and go to our chat or uh, go visit the chat on your web. Hell yeah. Yeah. And sorry about the sort of like the janky handoff, but this is the first time that we've done this. Um, I'm not Brianna Joy Gray who does this like flawlessly because she does this. She does this endlessly. Same with Katie Halper. She's like excellent. at. I'm only like managing the handoff. My sincere apologies for that. Alrighty. Do you want me to do the raid? Um, I can take care of it. I'm starting the All raid right. right now. So we're going to go ahead and raid Sounds into good. Rob Russo's channel, and then we'll we'll hop back to the uh, the call-in room. So for anybody in the audience, if you have any questions with regards to, um, or if you have any comments as well, with regards to the, uh, the Steve Bacon conflict of interest issue, if you have any thoughts about that, or journalism in general, really, because I would be really happy to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I've spoken about this kind of stuff. Um, uh, you know, for a long period of time. Uh, David Mastracci has probably been the most abrasive and confrontational about it. Righteously show, righteously. Um, but I want to hear your thoughts as well. So if you want to hit the uh, the call button, I mean, you can just, uh, you know, opt to uh, come up to the caller queue and we'll be happy to, to take your questions. And uh, so rating into Rob Rousseau's channel right now, everybody in chat, be real nice to Rob, tell him that we said what's up. And we will see you soon. Alrighty. Oh, also, Stu, what you can do is unmute yourself on Colin and just speak through your microphone on Colin. That should work to now. Sounds good. All right. Okay. Uh, all right. You, all right. Can I? Can I be heard? Yep. All right. Cool. Uh, all right. So the oh, we had a caller, and then the caller disappeared. What just happened? Um, no, no. Oh yeah, there we go, Pete. Uh, we'll take Pete's call, and Pete, in order to speak, just hit the unmute button in the lower right-hand corner uh hello can you hear me hello yes uh it's a pretty general question and i'm not trying to deviate too much from the topics that you guys the two ones that you had but i was sort of like generally curious about um working in a media collective like what you have at the culture.tv if yeah. there's any kind of words of advice or wisdom or anything like that thank you very much like produ- sorry know. like productive uh collaboration i'm not sure it's just something that i'm curious about so. well in what in what capacity what what type of collaboration are you about uh i don't know i yeah maybe i shouldn't have asked the question then because no no i'm no, no i'm not trying to put you down well do you mean do you mean like really, are you are talking really about like trying to do like, videos what kind or of work would you want to do in a yeah i guess i guess i guess one like a more like concrete question just be like um i don't know like uh i guess like video, I, I'm not sure what I'm really asking. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, so if you were to work in any kind of uh, capacity, what do you think you'd think? Uh, I think I could, I don't know. I, I, I think journalism would probably be, um, I, I worked at a newspaper in high school, mm-hmm. uh, but that's probably the closest I've gotten to anything like what, that. What did you do? With her? I was... Well, we had to like sell ads and stuff, so there was a little bit of that, like for the yearbook. But um, I, I wrote, I wrote a, a little bit. Okay, but what did you do? For- I was a, I was a write, I was like a journalist, like I wrote stories. Okay. Sorry. Oh, you wrote stories. Okay, so you were a writer. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay, well, don't call uh, me sir. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just. <laughs> okay, so you, you, you wrote. Uh, what kind of articles? Did you I honestly write? can't remember a single one. I don't think I was uh, super interested in it, but um, it seems that I spend so much time. Like, I don't know. It seems like something I could maybe do. Um, I, I understand that like newspapers or they like print media 
is like key to any sort of like, I guess, uh, working class movement, if that's what we're talking about. So like local yeah, reporting, I mean, maybe. It, it, I mean, having a, I don't know, like a press audit, like having a propaganda arm, you do have to be able to formulate agitated prop. Um, the reason I'm asking these questions and join some kind of media collective, uh, if you were to create your own, you know, what type of work because generally within media there's like a few different there's uh writing that is if you're like reporting opinion journal but also things like writing cop whatever publication creating like the website or accepting advertisements and that um there's also uh with like video good with photography you, know, you don't necessarily have to be a writer you can a videographer a humanitarian you can be uh are you good at production somebody who can uh take raw video and turn it into a slick package that looks professional are you an editor so maybe you're not totally interested in writing or reporting firsthand maybe what you want to do is have a look at other people's work and because you're good with condensing a lot of work and ideas you short paragraphs that hits a limit of 800 words maybe you're good at being an editor Maybe you're also somebody it, that is a like a host, like an anchor. Maybe you're, maybe you're uh, a sound editor. Like there's any number of things you can necessarily have to be the person who's like got a byline you can do. So that's why I'm asking these questions is what kind of work. And you don't have to go to journalism school. Like I didn't go to journalism. Um, and I wouldn't even recommend people go to a lot of weird ideas. Um, you should probably like take journalism. But you're, in, in my opinion at least, better served developing skills outside of journalism and bringing that to bear within your capacity as a so you don't have to be a border per se but you can be somebody who brings a certain perspective to your reporting or if you decide to do opinion journalism uh to your opinion journal you can definitely do that as well um but i would say like think about what you would want to do within the industry would you want to take photos would you want to write things would you want to write skips to be in front of the camera yourself? Like figure out what it is that you do within the industry. And once you have that part sorted out, then we can always have a conversation later on about how we go about uh, getting into the industry. Um, one thing that I've done myself uh, up until this year, like last year, I had plenty of time on this. Uh, this year, I just had so many projects on the go that I didn't have time for anymore. But I would mentor and uh, invite other journalists that have been in the industry for a long period of time to have conversations with them and give them like tips and pointers and perhaps even people. Um, and also like how to sell you, like the industry is branding and set no way around it, but how to uh, develop like a body of work that you can be proud of send off to an editor um, when you're sending off a pitch or when you sit down for a job interview. So uh, yeah, give this some thought. Don't regret that you asked the question. It is a very good question. A lot of people I think have that kind of question and don't ask it. Um, because they're embarrassed and think that you just, I don't know, come out of the womb. You absolutely don't. Stu is actually a more journalist than I, than I am. Stu's a reporter. Beats. I haven't done that. I'm a columnist. I haven't, I haven't. So you can feel free to talk to either of us and I'm happy to point you in the right direction. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Hey, right, take it easy, Pete. And thank you for your question. All right. Um, Mason, you can go ahead and ask your question. Hello, uh, Mason. Pardon me? Oh, I was just saying hello, Mason. 
Oh yeah. So Mason, to unmute the unmute button is in the lower right hand. Oh, yeah. You got it. Yeah, I had to give it permission. Um, okay. sorry. Uh, this is actually the question I had last week. Um, I sent you an, a DM, but maybe you just missed it. Uh, you seem like a busy person. Oh no, no worries at all. It's not a big deal. I know Twitter kind of filters them unless you've already. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. Twitter is the worst place to reach me. You're better off. Yeah. Like, you told me to DM you on Twitter though, so. <laughs> okay if you try to hit me up on twitter dms i've noticed that two really annoying things happen one is my messages get filtered and yeah. there's like a secret inbox that you have to like scroll mm-hmm. all the way to the bottom of all your filters to even access and yeah I, I really ever do that so one is that they're filtered two i think what's happening now with twitter is that as they're upgrading like as they're making changes to the front end of their site to make it faster and more and also as they're int- I'm noticing that my DMs are getting eaten. So like I'll try to access it on my phone and I'll see that there's a DM there. But if I'm at my desktop, which is where I'm at for most of my working and I try to access my DMs, I will not see the list. So it doesn't also I'm just really. blowing up with all the most awful shit I find online. Yeah. <laughs> so don't take yeah, it too so, personally. Um, yeah, so no. Really sorry about that, but the best way no, no. to reach me is so, just to send me an email or even you can even hit me up on Signal. I don't mind getting messages on Signal. Second okay. time's the charm. So what's the, now you got him? What, what's here? Yeah, no, it's no worries. I I figured it was. I wasn't. I didn't take it personally. Um, but anyway, it's a question. It's not really related to Canada, but since the last question wasn't, um, I don't know. Uh, so I I've been in this like sort of political, historical, uh, materialist kind of thing for a couple years now. Learning. I listen to a lot of different podcasts. I love the show that you guys do. Um, I happen to find um, a lot of info about history here in North America, obviously. Um, And then also I've been fortunate to find a good chunk of people who cover um, history within China and Asia. Um, But I haven't happened across a sort of podcast format, um, something that I can listen to while I'm at work um, that deals specifically with um, neither Latin America nor Africa. So I was just wondering if you had any suggestions for that stuff, um, because those are two continents that are often not talked about, um, definitely not talked about accurately. So yeah, if I could learn about them while I'm at work, um, I've got books, but like, I can't do that while I'm at work. So, oh, okay. so you want to get more of a sense of like how Imperium has affected Latin America and affected Africa? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, two of the books that I usually recommend, like right off the top. Podcast. Your podcast. podcast. I, ha- I have books. Podcast, <laughs> I have How Europe uh, Underdeveloped Africa. I think I'm going to start that one soon. But, like, I listen to a lot of this stuff at work. Um, I like to get paid to listen to communism stuff. So, uh, yeah, if you have, like, an audio um, suggestions, that would be awesome. Um, Let's see. I don't really listen to a lot of podcasts. That's fair. That's totally fine, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I tend to listen to, like, historical type podcasts but i don't listen to a lot of like analysis and news type podcasts so i can't help you there but if you're looking for another book on latin america and how imperialism has affected it uh there's eduardo galliano's open veins of latin america that's a really good one open veins of yeah i do a lot more book reading than i do yeah i need to get more into the book reading but it's just tough with it's, like work yeah, and everything it's really easy to um listen to a podcast in 
like bite-sized chunks versus sitting down and reading a book like hardly anyone has time to sit down and read but i do know that both high europe underdeveloped africa as well as open veins of latin america they're both available on audible so you can always oh yeah you can get them in audiobook format okay maybe i'll do that for the latin america one i also just got from jay watts in the party um he was he's liquidating his his books and i just got capitalism and underdevelopment in latin america by Ooh, andre andre gunder frank so oh um sorry this is this is from a party member so um yeah i'm excited to crack into that one but it's just um yeah if you don't have any audio suggestions no worries i just thought you might because i know you, you you do a lot of his um research into african history and yeah history historical stuff no, so i mean you gave me some pointers here so thank you oh <laughs> all right thanks all right thanks mason thank you for your question take care uh yeah so Stu, where were we oh yeah so uh, i think we pretty much like covered all we need to with steve bacon yeah um did you see by the way polling on okay are you aware uh both Stu and the audience that if you believe that Russia was provoked and has any reason, any kind of justification, basically, if you don't think that the invasion of Ukraine was completely unprovoked, totally unprompted, nothing happened that could have possibly turned Putin's imagination towards a defensive war by invading, if you believe that there is any mitigation of the fact that he's a tyrannical dictator bent on reestablishing a uh, an irredentist empire you're also an anti-vaxxer and by extension of being an anti-vaxxer that supported the trucker convoy you're also a white supremacist did you know that i didn't i didn't know that i didn't know that that's i didn't see the echoes poll but i i've seen like yeah i was reading the 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 one thing that's always funny is with all these polling it's like it's just like immediately goes down as soon as you explain any of this like what it actually means to people but like, what is what is the point of that correlation? Who is like, who is that helping? How do you? What does that tell you about anything? Okay, so here's the story, um, and I'm trying to find the echoes poll. Uh, oh, here we go. I believe Russia is committing war. Yeah, support for sanctions by vaccine acceptance. Okay, well, uh, the Toronto Star story reads like this, um, and it was written by Grant Lafleche. Unvaccinated Canadians are about 12 times more likely than those who receive three doses to believe. So it's weird how they say that, like, there's a, mm-hmm. the, the, the split is between people who have had three doses and people who are unvaccinated. Yes. So what does it mean if you've had, like, one or two doses? Are you also unvaccinated or? I, I don't know. Like, I, I wanted to find the original poll so I could I have, find the I have one here. from, from Probit. Uh, that uh, echoes through. So it's public attitude to Ukraine conflict by vaccine acceptance. Okay. The question is, uh, Canada should impose tougher sanctions on Russia, even if it means higher prices and slower economic growth at home. So 82% of people who received three or more doses agreed with that. And marked as vaccine refusers, uh, 75% of people disagreed with that statement who are marked as vaccine refusers. And the people right. received so, two doses, it's 50 to 33. Uh, okay, I found it. Yeah, I see it. I see it here as well. Okay, yeah, you're right. So it says, um, please rate the extent to which you agree or disagree with the following statements. Canada should impose tougher sanctions on Russia. 
even if it means higher prices and slower economic growth at home, receive three or more doses, a 2% agree, a percent see neither, disagree, one, uh, 6%, and don't know or no response, 4%. Receive two doses, don't know, 2%, disagree, 33%, uh, neither, 16%, and agree, 50%. And people who, by the way, it doesn't say people who have not had the vaccine. It doesn't say unvaccinated. It says vaccine refusers, which is also a bit confusing because th- mm-hmm. th- then it's a matter of, okay, are they ascertaining as to why they don't have the vaccine? Like why they haven't gotten it? Is it because they refuse to get the vaccine, like they're anti-vaxxers? Or is it because they have been hesitant to go get the vaccine? Or 75% of children under the, the age of 12 are opposed to the invasion of Russia. Pardon me? 70, uh, 75% of children under the age of five yeah. do not suppose <laughs> exactly. the sanctions. Yeah, exactly. So if you're ineligible, sanctions. if you're a child yeah. under the age of 12. Um, but also, like, if you're medically ineligible for, if you don't have any clinics nearby, or I don't know, but it's not clear here either. As a matter of fact, I did want to reach out to Frank Gaves myself because I, I, I do like Frank. Like, I, I think he's a, a good dude overall. And it, up to this point, at least I thought he was very honest in his polling methodologies. But this is probably the one where I, I look at it, I'm like, I can't figure out what he was trying to get at by asking these questions and the way that he asked them. I don't see the correlation because it's, the, the methodology is very unclear. All right. Um, uh, please rate the extent to which you agree or disagree with the following statements. Given the repression of Russian speakers in the Donbass region, uh, Russia was justified in invading Ukraine. So if you had three or more doses, uh, you were 80%, sorry, 88% likely to agree. Oh, sorry. Um, Sorry, 80 likely to disagree that Russia was justified. If you had two doses of the vaccine, 63% and 23% neither, 8% agree. And out of vaccine refusers, again, don't know if they're ineligible, don't know if they're hesitant, don't know if they're anti-vax. 27% say they disagree. Russia was justified in invading Ukraine. 35% neither, 26% agree. Um... Perceptions of war crimes. Please rate the extent to which you agree or disagree with the following statements. Um, I believe Russia is committing war crimes in Ukraine. 88% who've received three or more doses agree. Received two doses. 70% agree. Refusers. 42% disagree that Russia is committing war crimes. 18% say neither. Uh, 32% say they agree Russia is committing war crimes in Ukraine. Support for no-fly zone. Now, this is the one that had me scratching my head. I'm like, what the fuck are you trying to get at here exactly? Are you establishing? Because when he asks questions, again, like, it's not just the questions that are being asked. It's also the order in which you ask them. How are the questions being phrased? And what associations would the person who's being asked these questions yeah. make? Why the these questions? two specific questions? And why? Why are these two? Why? Why are we comparing? Why are we? At, why are we asking this group these questions? Why do we care right. about this breakdown? So, of like, here's the thing: um, when they say, "Okay," so here's the way the question was was formed: To what extent would you support or oppose establishing a NATO-enforced no-fly zone across Ukraine to counter the threat from Russian military aircraft? 
If you receive three or more doses, uh, 21% disagree, 13% neither, 59% agree. So if you receive three or more doses, you are most likely to agree that or to support NATO establishing a no-fly zone across Ukraine to counter the threat from Russian military aircraft. If you receive two doses, you are 46% likely to disagree, 12% likely to say neither, 34% to agree. Uh, if you have not gotten the vaccine, or again, vaccine refuser, 56% disagree with establishing a no-fly zone across Ukraine to counter the threat from Russian military aircraft. 19% say neither, 18% say they agree. So my question is, are did they ask the question in such a way that they explained exactly what a no-fly zone is? Because if they didn't, then what you've basically done is ask some very basic questions about what they think about the conflict as to, you know, who is to blame, who is justified in it, are crimes being committed? And those are, I think, even though you do require explanation for them, they're very simple questions to answer. But another question that I think we need to be answered is, do you know what a no-fly zone is? Do you know how a no-fly zone is enforced? Uh, So in the questionnaire, they'll say, or it says, a no-fly zone is an area where aircraft are barred from flying. They're often used in war zones to stop an aggressor from using aircraft to attack or conduct surveillance. Any planes violating the no-fly zone could be forced to land, escorted away, or ultimately shot down. To what extent would you support or oppose establishing a NATO-enforced no-fly zone across Ukraine to counter the threat from Russian military aircraft? And this is what is so dangerous about that question. They don't establish that in order to establish, or they don't uh, posit that in order to establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine, it would be an absolute requirement to fly into Russian airspace and bomb ground targets to establish a no-fly zone. It wouldn't just be shooting down planes over Ukraine. Also knowing that when Russia declared weeks ago that any outside actor entering the conflict by uh, going into Ukraine with their own planes would be considered an aggressor in the conflict. They would be considered involved in the war. But that aside, that's it's not just air-to-air combat that's taking place over the skies of Ukraine. Establishing a no-fly zone requires eliminating your target's ability to launch aircraft and to shoot down the aircraft that are that you are flying in order to establish this no-fly zone. So if you're in if you're in a fighter jet, you're in midair, and you're not only trying to shoot down a Russian MiG, you're also at the same time dodging anti-aircraft artillery. What you're going to want to do is also take out the artillery. You're going to send bombers over the land where this uh, these these SAMs are located, the surface-to-air missiles. They could be at a naval base, but they all could also be in, in towns. They could be in cities. So you're not just going to be bombing military targets. You're also going to be bombing mobile SAM launchers, and they could be located anywhere. So, for example, if in order to establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine and you're trying to shoot down um, Russian MiGs, uh, you're not only going to be... Um, fighting the MiGs, you're also going to be taking out ground targets that, let's say, power the Naval Air Force Base, uh, fuel lines running to that Naval Air Force Base. So you're also attacking targets within, let's say, populated regions, like in cities. So uh, the the ground the 
country for which the ground target belongs to isn't going to just sit down and take that. They're probably going to move their mobile SAM launchers to the areas that are either being bombed or likely to be bombing targets. So you're now fighting ground targets in populated regions, meaning that when you cut a bomb loose, it is very likely, if not guaranteed, that you're going to incur civilian deaths, which again is tantamount or basically a declaration of war. So not only are you violating Russian airspace and not only are you bombing ground targets that are incurring civilian deaths along the way, you're also attacking their military air force bases, and this is within the region. And where is it coming from? Is Are they flying into Russia proper? Yes, but not to the east of Ukraine. They're flying westward. They're going to the Kaliningrad Naval Base. And Kaliningrad Naval Base is uh, located within a well-populated region, uh, within the Kaliningrad Oblast, which is to the west of Ukraine, adjoining the Baltic Sea. So when when you've done that, you've also dragged NATO into this war as an entity, not Canada or the United States or France or the UK or even Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia individually. You're dragging NATO as a block into this war. So this is no longer a war between Russia and Ukraine. This is a war between Russia and NATO states. So in retaliation to their cities being bombed and civilians dying, what Russia is likely to do is start bombing targets in your country. And when they launch these these intercontinental ballistic missiles, or they're launching ballistic missiles across the European continent to strike targets at, let's say, I don't know, like Kramstein Air Force Base in Germany, right? If they're, they're striking targets in France, they're striking targets in the UK. How do you know which of those missiles that they've launched could possibly carry a nuclear payload? You have no fucking idea. There are missiles carpeting the skies right now because both sides are involved in exchange of missiles, most likely conventional missiles missiles at the onset. But how much of a guessing game are you going to risk playing during the course of this exchange as to whether any of the targets are carrying a nuclear payload? So at some point, some genius is going to say, I I think that they're actually going to, hey, this target is, is heading, or the missile is heading towards a high-value target. That would cause massive disruption and destruction, like long-term destruction if it hit. So if it hits a particular wheat field, if it hits a dam, it hits a hydroelectric plant, it hits a port city, if the missile is heading towards that target and you think that a nuclear strike would cause long-term damage to your country, you may simply operate in the assumption that this is a nuclear missile. Are you going to take the chance as to whether it is or not? So then what do you do? You launch your own. And now we are in a full-on nuclear conflict. And you heard how long it took me to explain that. It took me probably about five and a half, six minutes to get through that, if not longer. That was not explained in the questionnaire. So what is, what is, is it that I, by the way, am fully vaccinated. I've had my two shots plus my booster. So I've had three vaccine shots, okay? I am one of the uh, 21% that disagree with the idea of supporting a no-fly zone across Ukraine. But that barely even matters because they say 59% agree that there should be. So the majority wins in this case. uh, And for the refusers, an almost equal share of people disagree. So 56% disagree with the idea of establishing a no-fly zone. 
and 18% agree with the idea. So do you see how, like, now we're talking about not the 21% of people who agree that have had three or more doses versus 59%? Like, should we not be having a conversation between those of us who have had three or more doses about whether this makes sense? No. What we're talking about is vaccine refusers, which we can reflexively assume that everything they say and think is wrong, versus the 59%, Mm -hmm. a very similar amount, that agree. So and not only talking about the merits of the no-fly zone, we're talking about um, projecting our politics through the lens of whether or not we think people that are vaccine refusers have any right to affect public policy. And since we already blame COVID on those people who have not gotten the vaccine, regardless of the fact that 85% of us have gotten the vaccine, and therefore a much larger portion of the population agrees, sorry, disagrees, with uh, support for the no-fly zone. That's a much larger plurality of people who have received three or more doses, a much larger number of people. So we should probably be having a conversation between those of us, if this is how you want to frame it, between those of us who have had all three doses about whether you agree or disagree with the no-fly zone and on what merits. Because I guarantee you, if you ask that 59%, if they understand the full scope of establishing that no-fly zone, they would not be able to explain it to you. Why the fuck do I have to argue with somebody who doesn't understand the full scope of destruction that establishing a no-fly zone would create? Why do I have to argue with whether or not they have a right to to, uh, affect public policy versus a vaccine refuser? Basically, they're now saying that by proxy, my opinion is in line with the majority of people that they see as being the reason we can't get out of this out of this COVID mess. Therefore, opinion discarded. We are we are now establishing military policy through uh, moral speculation as to our motives, and it's either that I'm anti-vax or I'm a Russian operative. When really, it's I'm ha- I have an interest in in living. I would like to see the end of my natural life. I would like for there to not be a nuclear fucking cataclysm. But because you're yeah. operating on limited information, you get to assume the moral high ground as to whether or not a no-fly zone should be established. That is fucking irresponsible. And so, the yeah, weird I want to have is... a conversation with, uh, with Frank Graves about this because I think yeah. like, after having gone through the questionnaire in this poll and how the questions were being asked, this is – not only is it like it, – is it polling malpractice, but the fact that it was reported in our – one of the national newspapers of record, the Toronto Star – the Toronto Star actually reported this as if it's meaningful, and it's not, because it's not a matter of whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. It's a matter of how much do you know about what establishing a no-fly zone does between nuclear-armed powers. And it's a very strange way to make this case because I don't know exactly what, like, how, like what they would say the concrete correlation is there, because especially with the inclusion of receiving two doses. Because I could understand if it was just the binary where it was saying these are this is the opinions of the people who have who have not gotten any of the vac- uh, vaccines and these are the people of the people who are fully vaccinated, but to do vaccine refusers two doses and then three or more doses, are you implying that there's something in the vaccine that makes you more likely to to uh, to, to believe these things? What is because it's because you could also make the exact same reverse argument if you're going to be your like the like if you're an anti-vaxxer reading this uh, this poll 
you're probably going, well, see, they're putting the, the 5G mind control shit in there so that the more you put in your body, the more susceptible you are to it. So I don't, it's a very strange, like, to just have that impulse to go, you know what, that's, the, these are the same things. I know why, I know why they wanted to do that, as you've very correctly, uh, uh, like, laid out for us, that they're, they're just trying to delegitimize one side of it by saying, well, obviously all these people who are anti-vaxxers and who are ruining for everybody and they're obviously stupid and wrong uh they also tend to have to think the same thing so that means you're wrong it's here's what you're doing you're basically saying if you're if you have a policy opinion that is founded on a complete or at least a strong understanding of the facts of how military escalations happen and how conflicts play out if you have a more strong understanding of those facts than somebody who is not cognizant or aware of how these things play out don't have a strong grasp of geopolitics don't know about the history of war especially with regards to the cold war don't know um about nuclear armament uh nuclear proliferation and also the uh the drawdown of nuclear weaponry that the U.S., United States, and other clear-equipped nations went through, um, especially, like, throughout the 90s. So if you don't know about that, you actually have a shortcut. And your shortcut is, do you know who you sound like? Yeah. So you're taking the point of view that there shouldn't be a, a no-fly zone. Do you know who you sound like? And it's, I, it doesn't, what does it matter if the people who also disagree with the idea of establishing a no-fly zone, it doesn't matter what their motives are, they disagree. But I'm not talking to you about the vaccine because I'm fully vaccinated. I'm talking to you about how war works. Like as a student of history, I know how this works. And they can see circumvent you by saying, eh, Russian disinformation. You know, yeah. this is what the, this is what the vaccine, the anti-vaccine people are saying. Opinion discarded. Yeah, you're not. That, that is so fucking dangerous. Well, because there's because there, it's also implying that, that the same faulty uh, logic and fake news and anti-science reasoning that led people to refuse vaccines is obviously the same uh, reasoning and uh, false uh, logic that led them to believe these things about about Putin and the Ukraine and uh, no-fly zones. So that's and it, 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 it that. does. It's not. It's not only does it it because uh, it goes both ways. Not only does it. it uh, uh, illegitimize the, the beliefs of, of the one side, but also for the people who are who want the no-fly of the zone, they go, well, look at me. It's obviously because it's this is the opinion shared by the the fully vaccinated people. That's the pro-science and logical conclusion to, to yeah. make. So it strengthens the, your own side and weakens the other in both in both directions. Here, here are some other uh, questions that Echoes has has, uh, has pulled for right. Um, what what kind of outlook do you have on government based on their COVID response? How much do you trust the government in Ottawa or Washington to do what is right, Canadians and Americans? Um, all things considered, would you say the country is moving in the right direction or the wrong direction? Excuse me. All things considered, would you say the government of Canada is moving in the right direction? Uh, please rate the extent to which you agree or disagree with the statement. I feel my government has risen to the challenge of COVID-19 following well its response. Portugal, 74%, Canada, 63%, Germany, 58%, Italy, 41%, U.S., 32%, Spain, 27%, France, 26%. By the way, this was this was done in July of 2020, right? So that, that, that's, you know, other 
um, questions that they've asked to the public. Um, you know, here's here's another one that they did in June of 2021, and that was uh, the the title of it was Politics of the Pandemic. Uh, some questions there. Which of the following best describes your outlook on the outbreak? Um, 15%. And this, again, this is uh, June of 2021 is when it was released. 15% uh, say the worst is yet to come. 85% say the worst is behind us. Um, tracking the federal vote intention. Okay. If the federal election were held tomorrow, which party would you vote for? 35% liberal, 26% conservative, 17.0p. Right. So there's this tying together between. Um, and I can understand why these questions would be to get a sense of like, <clears throat> how much does your view of COVID affect your political outlook, whether you're satisfied or dissatisfied with the governing party and the opposition party's response to it? I think that asking questions like that makes sense because what you're gauging is your trust in government and responding to a massive public health crisis. But when you're cross-referencing your opinions on vaccination not with public health policy or your satisfaction with government, but with how we conduct foreign policy, that is completely fucking irresponsible. Because what you've done, it's not a matter of what it is that people who uh, agree or disagree with a particular part of public health policy, Jesus, that's a lot of Ps. Sorry for the alliteration. If somebody agrees or disagrees with public health policy measures, what does it have to do with their ability to ascertain what is happening outside of our borders and to come up with ideas about how to solve it, right? And at the very bottom of this this uh, June 2021 uh, poll, uh, vaccine acceptance by party support. Have you received at least a dose of COVID-19 vaccine? Would you be willing to receive a COVID-19 vaccine if one was available? Okay. Um, Liberal Party members, 90% uh, have uh, gotten a dose of the vaccine. Uh, 7% will or would get it. Um, 8%, sorry, uh, 9% would not get it, right? And then uh, don't know or didn't respond uh, below the below the margin of error, so they couldn't report it, right? Uh, Conservative Party, 82% got the vaccine. 6% want to get it or will get it. 10% won't get it. They're, they would not get vaccinated. 2% uh, don't know or would NDP. 89% got it, 7% would get it, right? Uh, Green Party, 88% uh, got it, 4% would get it. So across, like, the Liberal Party, Conservative Party, NDP, and Green Party, there are, you know, roughly similar rates of uptake for both they have gotten the vaccine or would get the vaccine. Now, there's a higher amount of people in the conservative party and also the Green Party, which was a little bit surprising. Well, like, maybe not surprising, but, you know, I didn't expect that. But uh, 7%, like higher than the NDP and the, the liberals, so 7% would not get it. And 10% uh, would not get the vaccine if they're CPC members. Keep in mind, the margin of error is plus or minus 2.6%. So are these statistically significant? Yes. Enough to report it. Is it something that we should really think about? No. That's barely anybody. And on top of that, the Canadian public, out of eligible recipients, 85% of Canadians who are eligible for the vaccine have gotten vaccinated. So it almost doesn't matter what party you belong to. Generally, people are on the same page. Oh, yeah, I should be getting this vaccine. Or I've already gotten the vaccine. Bloc Québécois, 96%, even more than the Liberals. Because, again, Quebec being a socially democratic province, probably, like I said, 
during the stream, the only true socially democratic province in Canada, 96% of people who vote for Bloc Québécois would get the vaccine, sorry, have gotten the vaccine. Um, and I can't even read this number here because it's like the, the, the margin is so thin. But like somewhere around like 3 or 4% or no, 3, sorry, 3% altogether um, either would get the vaccine or would not get it. Right. So again, like no statistical, statistical, statistical significance, nothing there whatsoever. Now for the People's Party of Canada, that's way different as expected. 39% have gotten the vaccine as of June 2021 between the 7th and the 14th of June 2021. So 39% of people who belong to the people have gotten the vaccine. 12% would get the vaccine. 40% refuse to get the vaccine. Now, Stu, refresh my memory. How much in vote totals did the PPC get in the last election? Jesus Christ. Did they get a percent? They did. Oh, yeah. Even yeah, even more than they did bit. previously. They did, they actually, they did not too bad. Yeah, no, they, they picked up the – they had, I think, the largest – I mean, keep in mind that we're talking about single digits. So when you say, like, they had the largest growth in terms of um, party support, in terms of votes, yeah, they had the largest growth percentage-wise. But when your yeah. support is only, like, 2 or 3%, then what does that really mean? Like, any small number of votes that you pick up are going to be – uh, are going to be more um, proportionally higher uh, than somebody than a party that's already got like you know thirty three, thirty or four percent support across the country. Yeah, no, it's. It, so did you find I out like, like what they got in the previous election? Yeah, it was just a little bit over five percent in the last last election, just a little over five. Okay, of the so popular out vote. of that five percent of people that actually voted for the PPC. Okay, so they got a mm-hmm. uh, little over 800,000 total votes in the country, right? Total. Yeah. Like 800,000 total mm-hmm. votes. Okay. Um, so out of out of that roughly 5% of the electorate that actually went out and voted, 40% say they would not get vaccinated, which is still a minority. I mean, regardless of the fact that it's a slim minority, but like – 40% would not get vaccinated is still a minority of people that belong to that party, right? 39% yeah. have, 12% would. 9% either don't know or did not respond, okay? So the minor- you've got a minority of a vast minority that mm-hmm. consider themselves, quote-unquote, vaccine refusers. So do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. You're no, it's, it's, okay. it's a sliver of a sliver of a sliver. So exactly. Going back to this poll that uh, Echoes did, right? Uh, again, where they say 56% of vaccine refusers do not agree with the no-fly zone idea, right? Yeah. What percent of the pop? What percentage of the population does that even fucking represent? Yeah, these are not even. Comparable. Automatically assume that if you are a supporter of the Liberal Party, you are vaccine positive. It's NDP vaccine positive, Bloc Québécois vaccine positive, Green Party vaccine positive. All these parties, the vast majority of their members either have gotten or would get the vaccine. So you can basically make the assumption that when you're talking about vaccine refusers, you're talking about people who belong to the People's Party of Canada. But you're also talking about a sliver of the electorate. But yeah, it, it, it's it's then made out to be... So when you have three, three groups of people, there's people who receive three or more doses, 
people received two doses, people who refused. Now we're talking about 33%. Like that's the rep because those are the only questions or the only categories, right? Mm -hmm. So the there's in the terms of categories, 33% of the categories are three or more doses, 33.33333 for two yeah. doses and 33.33333% are vaccine refusers. So it looks way worse than it is. It's yeah, because the, the distance between like maybe three dose, three or more doses, and two doses, those are maybe comparable population sizes. Yeah. But the distance in size between the population size of people who have at least two doses and the people who have no doses as of right now, I don't know what we're at right now, where we have at least one person kind of vaccinated. But that's it's. I think it's it's got to be less than like ten percent right now, right? So okay. we just said, like it's 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 this is insane to have look these two at, things together. But, yeah, let's let's have a look. So let's see uh, how many people have like two or more doses. Let's have a look. Uh, so eighty five point four one three has had at least one. Eighty one point three three has had at least two. Forty seven point six nine has a third dose and by the way they say fully vaccinated with the third dose like fully vaccinated used to mean two doses and then you got a booster so you have like you're fully vaccinated plus one like you did your job but then you got one maybe even two mm -hmm. more right so two is actually supposed to be like what the full vaccine dose is but now we've kind of shifted that goalpost which again like, i don't i don't disagree with it but we have to understand what categories we're talking about yeah, of those three categories, the two, the only one that really should be given any weight is the two doses because that's what the average person probably has, um, and the, you, the other two sort of cancel each other out because you have the, the the outliers who are the refusers, who are who haven't had a single dose, and then you have the keeners who have gotten every single dose within a week Not of it being announced for them. Like who qualify and or yeah. have the availability because like. I I was pretty proactive about getting yeah. my vaccine shot. Or you're like my sister and have the black I wasn't magic. To like, I didn't to... have any vaccines available in my neighborhood until uh, I got mine, what, I think it was like late February, early March was when I got mine. The third dose became available, what, like the, the end of last year? Yes. I got so it in I, I had like to wait almost day. a full calendar quarter before I could even get mine. Yeah. So according to the, the way that this poll is structured and the way that we're defining these categories, I am somebody who has not taken the measures to become fully vaccinated. I might be even be like refusing the third dose. And it's like, no, it simply was not available in my neighborhood. And now I've, I've actually got the, the, the smorgasbord of vaccines in my body because the first one I got was AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca and I was told that AstraZeneca was safe, and then it was not. So even though there were reports of vaccine injuries, people were in, uh, developing TIAs, transient ischemic attack, which is basically a stroke, um, because of blood clots that, that, that develop in the body and were migrating to people's hearts and brains, etc., and killing them or debilitating them. So I got that dose on the pretext or the, the pre-assumption for many reasons, because I was told that this vaccine is safe. So I went and got it. 
and then it wasn't safe. So it was removed from our vaccine supply. And then I went and I got the Moderna shot because I was told that if you have the AstraZeneca shot and then you wanted a second dose and it's not available, it's better to get Moderna than the Pfizer vaccine or the Johnson & Johnson. Yeah. Okay, so I, I went and got the Moderna shot. I waited and waited. I put myself on a waiting list to get the third shot and Moderna was simply not available. We don't have any in our region. Also, Pfizer was not available. Pfizer became available near the end of February. And because I was, I was on the waiting list for so, so long, oh my God, I can't form my words. Part of the reason is that because like the way that this, you know, the way that my setup is set up, I'm actually like hearing an echo. So I can hear myself speaking and it's hard to do that while, while forming thoughts. But anyway, um, so yeah, when I got my, uh, I went and got my third shot. It was a Pfizer shot, and I I did what at the very beginning of the pandemic we're told not to do, which was to mix up your shots based on availability. Like no, just wait wait till you get, uh, wait until the vaccine that you first got is available, and then get a second. And now it's like all right, well, go get your third, but don't worry about it. Like just get a get a vaccine. We don't care which one. So I did what I was supposed to do. What the fuck does it have to do with my opinion, which I think is fairly well-founded and more well-researched than the majority of people who have answered this question and who represent the vast majority of the population and you're weighing their opinions, the vast majority of the population who is not equipped or well-educated enough to answer this question that is the problem, but you can circumvent that by making the sliver of the population that has refused, flat out refused. Keep in mind, the minority of the most vaccine hesitant party in this country, a minority of them, which only represents less than 5% of the electorate. I now have to have my thoughts and my opinions about a global conflict weighed against whether this sliver of a minority in the country, like a minority of a minority uh, and a very, very small minority, whether you can associate what I'm saying with what you think they're thinking. Like, yeah. do you understand like why I'm so upset about this? No, I get it. No, it's, 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 it's just with it. Cause it's just with one fail swoop thing go. Yeah. If you believe this, you're, at the same level as an anti-vaxxer and it's just it's and they're trying to hand wave away the entire discussion and the discussion being whether or not we should do this thing that may cause nuclear holocaust yeah. by reducing it to the level of like anti-vax uh discourse <sighs> it's, it's it's like it's i mean it's i don't know it's it's i'm pissed off with you but it doesn't surprise me with the, with how like this like pol polling is not not at unbiased or uh like without uh like without intent like this is very clearly the way this poll was set up was not done in a way that oh we're just asking questions and just happened to make these two uh comparisons this was made for an intent uh, intentional purpose you don't ask these questions without wanting a specific answer that you ended up getting it's I'm not sure. Does anybody in the audience have questions or feedback about this? As a matter of fact, like seriously, come up and, and have a conversation about 
what do you or think you... about the no-fly zone? Like, what are your thoughts about that? Right? Literally, literally anybody in the audience, members in the audience who are also members of the Culture.TV Collective, you may also... Starting with... You oh, we got someone. There's Dave. If you were a member of the Culture.TV Collective, it starts with an A. We would also be very energy back. All right, Dade, what's up? How are you doing? Hey, what's up, guys? So just answering the, the question that you asked. I mean, it's a pretty simple. I'm calling from the United States of America. Like, a no-fly zone is an act of war. And the question is, like, would I be willing to give my life or lose members of my community to what is essentially a border dispute for the Russian Empire? Like, no, not at all. If I, by chance, found myself enlisted or drafted into this war and shipped across the sea to some foreign land to fight in a war that has no effect on my life, and God forbid I ended up falling victim to this, I feel like it would be a total waste of my life. I wouldn't want to take a life over this. I wouldn't want to lose my life over this. I wouldn't want to see anyone in my community shipped across the sea over this. I'm disappointed in the transparent escalation of my leaders in this conflict leading up to this from 2014 to now, from before 2014, truly. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, I find the notion to be ridiculous. And mo most than all, I find it uh, disappointing that, you know, we can't have an adult conversation in the West about our, our role and having escalated this conflict and our role in all of this. So, you know, it's like, you know, this is not news to any of you guys, and I'm sure you probably feel the same way. I think a no-fly zone is complete ignorance is pushed by, you know, warmongering demons that have found themselves the lovers of power. And so long as they're there, they will keep pushing us to that point. So that's how I feel about it, respectfully. Thanks for taking my... Yeah, absolutely. And uh, appreciate you, appreciate the comment. Um, I, I think, like, one of the the worst aspects about this war is that I think for the first time, like you have the ability, if you believe deeply in this conflict, you have the ability to go off and fight in this conflict. Um, you know, for people that, uh, let's say, uh, during the during the Iraq War, for example, right, uh, or even during like the bombing of Libya, you you would generally need to be like active duty military, um, and you would probably want to be around draft age, in order to go off and fight in those conflicts. And so the way that you would engage yourself in them is that you would enlist in the military um, and then have to go through like basic training and, and all of that uh, and then find yourself fighting in the Iraq war theater. But the thing about that is that you, you've got, a, excuse me, you've got an age range and there's questions about your health and everything else and, and your, um, your psychological capabilities and stability, et cetera. So you're going to face some, scrutiny you're going to face some screening before you are actually engaged in the conflict before they put a gun in your hand and send you off to battle but this one this one is the first i think possibly for um our generation where it none of that matters because at, at least until very recently like un, until this past week you could simply book a ticket fly over to ukraine uh and enlist and they would with very minimal training put a gun in your hand and so if if you have any kind of uh, outstanding support for this war, and you believe it is it is justified, you believe that uh, support for Ukraine cannot simply be measured in whether you click likes on social media or put a flag in your profile, but 
actually supporting this war by sending them aid and sending them weapons and having people go over there to fight on their behalf, well, you know what? You can fucking go and do that too. There is no, there is literally nothing stopping you. Matter of fact, they will pay for you to go over there. So yeah, man, it's it's crazy. I got a question that, for so, you. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Quick question for you. I've been meaning to start asking people about this because it's something that I'm very curious about trying to connect these dots, if at all they connect. But, you know, the whole laptop story has been back in the news. Oh, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. My question is, and I wish I could talk to someone who knew about this. I, but I'm I, cur- almost wish, I almost wish that it wasn't because the amount of gloating that Glenn has been doing <laughs> over having been vindicated well after basically being, I don't want to say like forced out of the intercept, but more or less like, you know, unable to continue working with the intercept because oh, that's they right. I, that's yeah, right. They, yeah, they they you know uh, censored him more or less. But even the people who are covering it, I don't think are taking the angle that I'm about to ask. If you how what you think about, which is like, you know, Burisma is a Ukrainian oil company. We have all this stuff, and up in the election before this about Ukraine's yeah. relationship with Biden and his family, and then at basically a year into his administration, Russia invades Ukraine. And, I'm, and, you know, there's a lot of speculation. Obviously, in 2014, he moved on Crimea. A lot of people have talked about the oil that was found in the Black Sea, at least that being a factor of many in this conflict. But I wish that there would be, um, I wish I could hear some conversation about the connection of Burisma and Biden and this conflict. Maybe there is no connection, you know, but like to me, it seems kind of coincidental a matter of happenstance that you know the president's biggest scandal happens to be with Ukraine, which is kind of a obscure country to the United States. Like, other than it being on the border of Russia, they don't we don't trade with them that much. We don't do much business with them. So it's weird that we have a president whose biggest scandal has to do with Ukraine oil, and then a year into his administration you know, the first conventional war in Europe since 1940s breaks out in Ukraine. And I just don't know what connection there is. And and again, maybe there is no connection. But even people like Glenn, who have been talking about this laptop for months, and truly he has been vindicated. I don't know if I hear him even talking about how these two things might or might not relate. So I don't know. I just want to put. Okay. Um, Okay. So please excuse my autism. Uh, And I, I, I try to make sure that when I ask this question, I'm not insulting people or making you think that like you went on for too long. It's just more like if I don't hear a question phrased in a condensed manner, I literally do not know how to answer it, but I'm answering. So I guess like, would you be able to like summarize your question? Yeah. To put it in, in precise words, concise words. Um, do it, how do you think the Burisma um, scandal with Joe Biden relates to the invasion of Ukraine? Do you think it relates do you think that there's a conflict oh, in Russia? I see release? what you're saying. Okay, so are, are you sort of getting at like um, one of the reasons for uh, massive support of this uh, of the Ukrainian side in this conflict, and for drumming up um, all of the or, or, or for ringing all of the alarm bells about the potential invasion, was so that uh, when the invasion happens, then the issue with the conflict of interest regarding Burisma that gets uh, more or less subsumed under either A, like uh, the news cycle being so heavily re- uh, co- wrapped up in the military conflict that it disappears from the front page headlines, and also B, even for the people who do notice it, uh, bound up in patriotic fervor, war against this tyrannical disregard, this 
this scandal from is that more what you said yeah you kind of broke up at the end there but i think essentially yeah you know in which ways does this conflict of interest relate and in, in other terms like i don't even know barisma as a company if that how that relates to Zelensky, what's the relationship between Zelensky and barisma and i feel like that is something that i feel people should be more curious about this is joe biden's biggest scandal this is also his biggest conflict he's faced as a president and like the question of how do they relate they're in the same nation you know like i feel like it can't be a coincidence they have to relate somehow i so i'll I'll let here's my sort of normie uh kind of like i think it's i think this is just it, it relates in that like america wanted to have greater influence ukraine and they were doing that through a lot of venues and with the like the Hunter Biden Burisma thing, I like I don't know if you're ever gonna find anything that went, Hey, if you hire uh, Hunter, uh, you'll get this this special treatment. I think it's it's more that like Burisma knows that if they hire Hunter Biden, who is completely like not qualified for the job, that that'll like improve their relationship with Biden and as well the US. Um, and then also the way it relates to Ukraine is that like Putin is responding to uh, U.S. NATO Western influence in the Ukraine. I don't. I, I don't know if it's. I think it may also just be. Yeah, it, it's just all, both of those things were happening in Ukraine is the connection. But I'm sure Q will have a much more. Uh, well, it's more also because in 2014 the Euromaidan was sparked by the oil agreement between Ukraine and the EU under Yanukovych. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, like. If when you're talking about the U.S. trying to have more influence and uh, and like control in a country, it's usually because of energy and specifically oil. Well, energy is also yeah. Russia's biggest export. In fact, it's really like their only thing that makes them a superpower on the world. So it's also like not just like they're a nation that isn't like vulnerable because they import oil. They actually rely on their export of oil. Mm-hmm. So it's it's I think it's I think it's it's like all of the like where those are those connections and how it connect it's like I would say it's all there right on the surface on its face like it's they want to have that control and influence with the energy because it also it hurts Russia and they can have and they can uh, contain them better by having more influence on Ukrainian uh, energy. Yeah, but I see you you'll hear people say like oh the Biden administration and the American administrations prior to him you know, escalated this conflict by pushing NATO into Ukraine. But you don't hear a lot of people articulating that another way in which the United States has escalated this conflict is with, you know, global capital moving into Ukrainian oil, which is going to pose Mm -hmm. a direct threat to Russian oil exports, which is like, I think their number one income. It's not just a matter of Russian oil exports. I mean, there is that, but there's also the fact that there's plenty of money to be made in the liquid natural gas pipeline that passes through Ukrainian territory, which is why um, one of the major sort of, uh, uh, I want to say like one of the, I don't want to say like reasons for the conflict, um, maybe like one of the uh, the issues that was heavily influenced by and affected by the conflict was the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, because you know, the the existing, I believe it was the Soyuz pipeline that uh, goes through Ukraine, because there's like a multi go through that region. But uh, I'm pretty sure Soyuz was the the one that goes directly through Ukraine. But uh, um, there's plenty of money to be made in the delivery of liquid natural gas to uh, to Western Europe. Uh, so it's not just a matter of uh, competing oil interests. It's also a matter of uh, Russia delivering or, or creating a pipeline 
that would bypass Ukraine altogether and possibly cut them off from natural gas delivery revenues and from land lease agreements. Um, and there are people that have interests in uh, natural gas delivery, in natural gas, um, not, not just to, to Western Europe, but also delivery to like consumers inside of Ukraine proper. Uh, they would be losing out on hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, um, if the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is completed. So when uh, there was essentially like, a, I wouldn't say it was a cancellation because I don't know that Germany would never come back to the table on this. But um, when when it became clear that Germany was facing enough pressure from the NATO countries, but primarily the United States, to not go ahead with the uh, with signing on to the pipeline, uh, that is more or less when this whole thing broke out. So it's I don't think it's just the oil interest. I think it's also... Uh, that Ukraine was going to be cut out of a very profitable mode of delivery of energy. Yeah. Well, um, thanks for taking my question. You know, yeah, I, no I hope I wasn't all over the place. Just trying to get no, 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 basically anytime. the point. Yeah. yeah happy, cool. happy to have the chat. And uh, thank you very much for the question. And there was, by the way, there was one more person that was in the caller queue and I, I didn't catch their name. Um, but uh, yeah, sorry about that. If, uh, you know, we went on a little bit long and I want to, I always want to make sure that we are able to have a complete conversation regarding these questions. But uh, feel free to hop back in the queue if you wanted to ask your question. Um, but if you're no longer here, I mean, always feel free to hit me up, like send me a message, and I can next time that we come back. Stu, was there anything else that you uh, anything else that you need to cover, or do you think that we're no? Uh, we're I think good? I yeah. think we've we've covered a lot today. So yeah, we should. I'm uh, yeah. I think we're right. a good spot to wrap up unless anyone else yeah, wants absolutely. to jump on. If anyone has any more questions, I'm happy to take them. But if we are good to wrap up, I'll go ahead and wrap up. Um, and I will also make sure that for next time, I, I did do a test with the sound. So apologies if it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, perfect this time around. We did get it together, but it's all. Uh, but next or, next time, I will make sure that the sound is immaculate. Um, but uh, once again, thank you to the whole room. Uh, thank you to our callers and for your feedback and questions. And uh, Stu, thanks very much. I will see you again next week. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Have right, a good, easy, bud. good Wednesday, everybody. All right. See you all in hell. Bye. See you.